say you're my husband. Remember the time when started the part the podcast by the way. Remember the time I got so sick. It was 1998, and we had just gone to this. Well, it wasn't someone's wedding. It was my birthday, and you were flying off to Pakistan, and I was so sick that you had to put me into a bathtub of ice. <laughs> Do you feel sick again? Because I'm going away now to Israel. I don't know. I think I keep it under control these days. Um, probably because I have the responsibility of a child. But uh, if this was 10 years ago, Pammy, I would still be getting sick. You had a child then. We had a child. Alex was there <coughs> watching me put ice into that That's a good time. point. That's a good point. Going, is, is dad going to be okay? Maybe I'm just a little bit older than him. I don't know. Yeah, you seem to be okay. But you're always flying away. Not you're always flying like... away. I always take you. And the family with me wherever I go. And I'm, I'll miss you, but, you know, taking everyone to Israel right now is not something I can do practically. I know, but, you know, I would love to go to Israel. That's one thing inside, but it's on the bucket list. It's funny that I didn't uh, want to push going. I think it's because you're just doing your, your work stuff, but... Um, Going to Sarajevo this summer. That's something I'm really looking forward to. I'm so excited for you to see Sarajevo. It's really a magical city. So is Jerusalem. So I I think I'm very lucky to go to places like Venice, Sarajevo, Jerusalem, live in New York City, be even in Karachi. Karachi is also a magic for me, where I was born. I was thinking to myself the other day how... I'm sort of food oriented, especially when I travel. So I was thinking, I sort of pushed you on this yesterday. But you didn't really react too much, but uh, because maybe you're really focused on your work. But I, mean, I was thinking about what kind of culinary delights await you in Jerusalem. I remember having the best salads in Jerusalem, the biggest medleys. Just fresh vegetables. But also, I'm, I'm going there in March, so everything's very seasonal there. But you've said mint leaves before. I don't even know what that means. <clears throat> They're just these huge salad, lettuce, mint leaves. They're not too minty. They're really crunchy. Yeah. It's incredible. I've never seen anything like that. And I've never seen anything like that here. Well, you know, Israel has its own agriculture. They've been very developed for many years now. Um, and... They really do grow some amazing food there, and they are self, you know, really basically a self-sustained country um, since '48. What about olives? I always hear olives are a big deal there. Olives are just fantastic. Um, the olives were there before Israel was a, was a well, country, and so was you know so were what we call Jaffa oranges, taken over by Israelis from a lot of the Arab farmers. So. You know, I think it's a combination of the, the, the fertility, the agriculture that was there before, historically, but also how incredibly organized um, the Jews were when they came into Israel, and how they built these spaces, um, oases, basically in the middle of the desert. Weren't they really adopting the local cuisine? Yes. Um, of course they were, and I think they perfected some of it, and some of it is a little different. So, I mean, Arabs and 
Israelis share the same food, um, but at the same time, you know, Jews also have kosher restrictions, and a lot of the Palestinian Muslims have a lot of the halal restrictions. So it does it does differ. I'm always interested in, in food items, or, or at least a, a take on culinary realities that you can only get in a certain spot. You know, because it's you know we talk about Italy a lot, and you don't really want to try to replicate things outside of Italy because it's just a great place to go and enjoy that. Um, there's this big question about the falafel. You know, we've had falafels here in New York, L.A., we've made them at home. Well, I mean, honestly, is it, I've, is it, I've had the best falafel in Greece. Is that right? Yeah. So, I don't know. I mean, we could sit there and argue it. I think you should really try a falafel. <laughs> I will and, have a falafel. And, and report back. Maybe... If it's possible, maybe on one given street, they're going to have this guy's got the best falafel, this guy's got the best falafel. I remember when I was there in 95, I was so poor I had no money, and this uh, one Arab um, cook, and he had a little falafel stand. He would, he, I would pay him five shekels for a really big falafel sandwich, and I'd sustain myself, and then towards the end, I didn't have money. He'd say, hey, you want a falafel? I said, no, I don't. I'm to save my money. I still have a week to go, and he—he he just fed me. He just gave me waffles. Well, speaking of unique stories of Jerusalem, can you tell that that story you um, related to me a couple times about having the key to the Dome of the Rock? Yeah, I mean that's a really interesting story. One of my students asked me that question. Um, <clears throat> I was, you know, during the. In Jerusalem, I don't know how it is now, but when I was at Hebrew University, we had about three hours of siesta, basically, and things would close down and marketplaces, and we'd already have class, so we didn't have anything much to do, and everyone would be resting, and I would just venture out into um, East Jerusalem, which is under, still under our control, and I met, um, actually his name is Al-Husseini. Did you go out specifically to do this, or you sort of wandered into this by mistake? I wandered into it. I wandered into everything in my life. I never really purposely or consciously did anything that gave me these, you know, rich and varied experiences. So I wandered into this quarter, and I didn't know anything. I was, you know, very young, and I was in this quarter, and I started talking to this, this man, and he asked me if I wanted to have tea, and I said, sure. So I went to his house, and they made me tea. And then I said, you know, I'm a Muslim, and I'd really like to go to Dome the Rock, but it looks like it's closed. He said, oh, don't worry about it. Here's the key. And, and he therefore, was the keeper? I mean, he's a, he was what? a gatekeeper. Where was he from? <clears throat> he was an Arab... Um, Arab Israeli? Arab Palestinian. Well, yeah. Um, Arab Israeli. Yes. Okay. What's it like when you, I mean, uh, when you approach it? I mean, is it like you would imagine, say, something at the... Uh, the Vatican or you know, something more rustic? It's more rustic than the Vatican, uh, especially the grounds. And then there's Masjid Al-Aqsa right there. Um, I think the Dome of the Rock has special meaning for Muslims because of the ascension of Muhammad um, coming to Jerusalem um, mm. from Mecca at the time that it was early Islam. But you know, it's just so absolutely beautiful inside. Um, and the, the calligraphy, the dome, it kind of reminds me of this orthodox kind of Byzantine, which probably it was influenced by, of course, and 
Just the fact that I was there and I prayed, and looked around, I you, felt kind of nervous. Being do around. you have any idea what the, I don't know, relationship is with your typical Israeli Jewish individual with the Dome of the Rock? I mean, what do they, what do, they do with it? What do they, how do they see it? Well, I mean, most Israelis see the Dome of the Rock as a holy place for Muslims, just like most Muslims see the Wailing Wall as part of the temple. Uh, for for Jews is a sacred site. So I mean, there is that respect and that understanding that one doesn't really go to one another's places because of the restrictions that are put on, um, especially if you're from there. I think it's different if you're from outside. Mm -hmm. So I'm hoping that when I go to Jerusalem, I'd be able to go to the Wailing Wall. And I love standing there and looking behind the wall, you can see the Dome of the Rock, and as I recall, on the right side, you can even see the Church of the Sepulchre. So for me, it comes all together because I really, I really do love the Abrahamic faith. So that's why I felt the spiritual calling and felt that our religions were so close and came back with a message and that Israelis and Palestinians gave me, which is all they wanted was peace. It's funny because I would like to visit all of them, although I say from as a American, the Church of the Holy Sepulchre holds the most interest for me, and I think maybe that's simply because, uh, you know, it's some sort of mythos that we've <laughs> been fed all our lives in, you know, in a <clears throat> sort of a Christian environment. <clears throat> and, you know, there's always something supernatural, and, and even the name, you know, is kind of interesting. So, but I understand it's actually pretty a plain place in, in actuality. Um. Yeah, it, I mean, it's small, it's marked, mm -hmm. um, but it does have a power to it. Of course, Jesus, you know, um, died there. Yeah. So there's that power. <clears throat> and then when you walk into the quarters, you kind of imagine, you know, the scenes of the cross that you see in every church today. And you think of Jesus going through that. And then you're just standing there going, oh my God, I'm here. So there's a certain kind of physical terrain um, that calls for, I don't know, nostalgic, um, maybe spiritual, maybe imaginative um, thrust mm. you know, in terms of what Jerusalem is. And I think Jerusalem, <clears throat> I mean, recently was, you know, now um, named by Trump as the capital of Israel. Um, which is kind of silly because I mean everything is in Jerusalem. It always has been for the Israelis, but to name it kind of makes it official. Well, you can't really it, name it. He's yeah, just agreeing. Really He's just it. agreeing with Israeli government. But you know, Netanyahu was excited about it. So I think a lot of people on the ground, and I'm going to speak for the Jews right now, would say that's not fair. I mean, they really do respect other traditions. We are headed off to this conference in just a few days, and. Um, I understand it's about uh, anti-Semitism, but uh, it's just a, a conference that, go, that goes on every year, and it's a considered effort to talk about the issues of anti-Semitism. Yeah, it's a sixth annual uh, global summit, and it's um, the largest conference on anti-Semitism, and they have it every year, and this year... Um, they're having very interesting things about Jews, Christians, and Muslims. They talk about 
Arab anti-Semitism. I talked about Muslims and Holocaust remembrance. So I think that's why I was invited on a very interesting panel with two other people, one who is Turkish and one who is an Israeli Arab, and they're doing really amazing work um, about you know anti-Semitism. But I also, I mean, I think going to this conference is important to me because even in my book, I talk about the racialization of the Arab. Sure, if it wasn't lies. Right. Yeah. Um, Islamophobia. Um, so I'm not sitting there thinking, okay, you know, we have to also um, look at the other that is being actually more victimized today. And I'm not talking about Palestinians and Israelis. I'm talking about Muslims in the world and the wound of the Muslims. So I'm really, really going to try and present my work, but also say, look, I'm walking a fine line. I'm a Muslim. I experience Islamophobia. I see it around me. And then I'm fighting for an, against anti-Semitism. And I think it's, it's the job of the Jews to fight for Muslims and Arabs for a change. That's for sure. So to leave our, <clears throat> to leave our um, listeners on a cliffhanger, let's, let's uh, promise on the next episode to talk about your reflections once you get back. Okay, that'll be fine. Thank you so much.